Welcome to the Drivable Podcast, where we discuss all things about driving and safer community transport for people with disabilities and medical conditions. Even if you haven't done so yet, make sure you subscribe to our channels uh, or follow us on our socials. Just search Drive Able Podcast or Drive Dash Able Podcast. Um, we have heaps of content and interviews now. We're on all the platforms. Go back and listen to some of our old episodes. If you want to look into some of the show notes and the links that we speak about, check us out on Facebook. Um, Facebook is the easiest platform for us to share all the links and all the extra kind of little photos in the comment sections associated with um, the stories. So if you want to see that extra stuff, check us out on Facebook. Um, otherwise, we're on all the different um, on the platforms and just check out those interviews. And um, yeah, Brad, how are you going? Yeah, good. Thanks, Ali. I'm looking forward to this one today. We're not just talking to a driver with a disability. This one's a little bit different as we do um, through this podcast is that we talk to industry experts as well as people with uh, disabilities that are drivers. In this episode, we are interviewing Nick who's the CEO of Blue Badge Insurance. Now, Blue Badge Insurance is an insurance company that not only provides insurance products for people with disabilities and mobility issues, but they insure vehicles with modifications as well. So in this episode, uh, well, it it should be full of tips and advice and uh, we can't wait to get this one started. Ali, you've got something else for us? Yeah, so um, because we're interviewing someone from the insurance uh, industry, it's very important that we make this statement uh, before we interview and everyone listens to this kind of formal part of the the interview. And basically, you need to understand that the information shared in this podcast is general in nature and does not take your specific needs or circumstances into consideration. So you should look at your own financial position, objectives and requirements and seek financial advice before making any financial decisions. So it's very important that you consider that before you listen uh, to the rest of this interview. Otherwise, you ready for it? Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Driving is something many take for granted, but when someone has altered ability, then driving or getting out and about in your own car can be challenging. Driving with a disability doesn't mean you have to drive an old clapped out car with farm-like machinery, and relying on a wheelchair doesn't mean waiting for hours and then being in the back of a maxi access cab getting car sick. The Drivable podcast is designed to introduce and explore driving aids for people with disabilities, vehicle modifications, the NDIS, research, medical guidelines, driving techniques, and much, much more. The Drivable podcast is to help you be informed and be in control of your own independence so you can experience freedom through driving safely and reliably. I'm Ali and with me is Brad and together we have over 30 years of experience in disability and driving. Enough of the intros, let's get into it. Okay, welcome back. We're going to kick off by introducing uh, Nick. Nick, if you could introduce yourself to our listeners and give us a little bit of history uh, and how you came into your position at Blue Badge and a little bit about Blue Badge to get us going. Sure, and, uh, and thanks for the opportunity of having, uh, having me on today. Uh, so yes, my name is uh, Nick Whitcomb and I'm CEO of Blue Badge Insurance uh, and I'm also uh, Vice Chair of the Assistive Technology Suppliers Association, or ATSA, as many of your listeners might know. Um, look, broadly speaking, I've had a, a background in sales, marketing, innovation, and general management um, over, a, over a number of years um, and really didn't get into insurance till about eight years ago uh, when uh, it was one of those classic situations where a friend of a friend gave me a call and said, uh, there's a business looking for a CEO as a startup uh, in the insurance space. And it was something I'd, I'd never been involved in before. I've been involved with companies like Virgin Money, but I hadn't been involved in um, in the insurance space before. And it was just an intriguing proposition. You know, the, the bottom line of it was that a, a gentleman by the name of Mike Fish, who is still a, uh, a director and an owner of the business today, uh, had run a very similar business in the UK, a business called Fish Insurance, for around about 35 years. Uh, and he discovered over a period of time what you would define in insurance speak as a niche market that specialised on the needs of people with disability. Um, and the way the way he came about, which I think is an interesting little side story, was that his father, he was an underwriter, uh, and his father was uh, a driving instructor. And we're talking about, you know, we're talking about late 70s here in the UK. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the driving instructors came across to Mike and said, listen, we've got a young lady here who's just passed her driving test. 
but we're struggling to get her insurance. But not only are we, we're struggling, if we can get it, it's four or five times the price of what, you know, and any other 19-year-old lady would be paying for her insurance who's just passed her, her test. And of course, when Mike inquired, she was um, a wheelchair user and was driving with hand controls from a, from a wheelchair. Um, so, you know, being a, an insurance person, he went looking for numbers and figures and now, he assumed that the statistics would show that a, a 19-year-old female driving a hand control uh, would be a high level of risk. But what he actually found was there was just no information. Um, and the one thing insurance businesses hate more than bad information is no information. And so they just rated in such a way that said, just go away. We don't want to listen to you because it's, it's too confusing for us. Um, and, and from literally from that conversation, might convince some insurance, uh, provide underwriting. He wrote, wrote 100 policies. 100 policies became 1,000 policies. He started running insurance for, um, for wheelchairs. They started running insurance for mobility scooters and the business literally just took off from there. Um, and Mike developed that business for many years. He eventually sold out, went into retirement, um, came to a wedding in Australia, was having a chat to a guy next to him at, at the wedding, discovered they were both in insurance. Uh, and Mike just asked the question, you know, what's insurance like for people with disabilities in Australia? And um, James just said, well, there isn't any, you know, why would there be, what's the need for it? Um, and so from that conversation, uh, a friend of mine was a friend of James, got this phone call, we want to investigate whether there's a similar opportunity here in Australia. Um, so that was back in about uh, 2013, uh, it took about a year just getting out, meeting people like Ali, you know, getting involved with ATSA, talking to people, you know, met um, guys like Chris Sparks, I, I met Lloyd Walker, and we just started to get a feel what was going on obviously at that stage the NDIS was just in the early stages of rollout um, but the most clear you know uh, situation was that we were like the UK was in the 1970s um, mm. difficult to get insurance for vehicles uh, that have been converted for a driver or passenger with a disability um, and the other interesting thing that they found in the UK was not just uh, converted vehicles where uh, people were not being considered but it was actually they discovered that even vehicles that regularly use the disability parking permit crash less. You know, completely the counter to what everyone assumes that anybody with a disability parking permit can't drive and they're old people they, and they crash. The statistics actually show that they're, they're a lower level of risk. And it's exactly the same situation for converted vehicles. They're just a lower level of risk so that you can insure them for less. Mm. Uh, so that, that's, that's the basis of, you know, where our learning came from, our investigation of... Um, of the Australian marketplace, um, we went around, we found ourselves an underwriter and we started running policies uh, initially for mobility scooters and wheelchairs uh, in December 2014. Um, and here we are seven, almost seven years you know, after our first policy, we have literally thousands of policies in place. We insure hundreds of thousands, sorry, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of equipment. Um, we insure as I said, we insure any vehicle that frequently uses a disability parking permit. We insure vehicles that are being converted for a driver or a passenger with a disability. And we insure vehicles that just have, uh, whether it be a standard hand control, a hoist, a lift, any of those types of conversions that are relevant to our community, uh, other vehicles that we insure. And then you also do, do equipment as well that's not related? Yeah, so we're doing, we do have, we have a, obviously the, uh, the wheelchair uh, policy, which started off being an electric wheelchair policy, but surprisingly is, is growing more and more into manual chairs, power devices, you know, e-motion wheels, smart drive, um, you know, the clip-on um, uh, hand control, you know, units that they've got, all like, like, like bike control units. So that sector of the market is growing. And then it's just, a, as you know, the mobility scooter market is, um, is huge and just continues to grow. So um, mm -hmm. we ensure all of those. Um, confidentially, and I know this is just between the few of us here. <laughs> um, we we are we're going into the um, bizarrely into the pet insurance market, and we we've, we've just announced uh, recently in the last two weeks or so that we're becoming a, a sponsor of the assisted um, assistance dogs Australia, uh, who do a lot of work in the physical disability space, and so we're going to start insuring insuring um, uh, assistance dogs. Is that through a blue badge? Is that Sorry. like under the blue? Is that under, under the, the blue badge? Under brand? the blue badge name. Mm. Under the blue badge name. Yep. So um, we're getting involved in that space. It's a really interesting space. Absolutely. Um, something that we're we're interested in is that you know um, we're all in the assistive technology sector. If you look into the NDIS funding and the way they categorize guide dogs or assistance dogs are uh, 
are defined as assistive technology. Yeah. So which yeah. is unusual, but 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 true. Um, but there's there's they have huge issues that they have getting their level of of funding out of the um, NDIA because sorry, let me categorize a guide dog is an assistance dog, but um, and they will be funded, obviously, whereas you have real problems. If you've got a physical disability and you have a guide dog, you have huge problems getting funding through the NDIA. So anyway, so we're, we're spinning into some other areas. We're looking to try and help our customers out. So we're, we've negotiated with our underwriter a 25% discount on, on insurance if you have an assistance dog. Um, so it's basically like a pet insurance product, but you get a discount. And then anybody who has a disability parking permit or a converted vehicle, we've also negotiated a 15% discount on that, on that product. I'm probably a few weeks early, but um, you know we're working in that space. Uh, and we're gonna to continue to look at other spaces as well. Um, we're looking to make sure that our product picks up some of the nuances that are so specific to our category. Um, and we'll, maybe I can touch on some of those a little later on. Mm. So can I just clarify what you were saying before? Because of the stats, um, you're able to actually offer the insurance like for cheaper than normal insurance for it. Standard I mean, yes, and here, I mean, at some stage we'll get into the the complexities of insurance. But so every insurance company has its pricing. It's not the same pricing. All of it, everyone's pricing is based upon their experience. So mm -hmm. that's and and you get this, you know, this kind of homogenous group of people, and that and that's your experience. What what we've done is that we know that our customers are statistically lower risk. So when you when you enter the market, you go and buy somebody's experience. You know, so effectively you buy that kind of, that's your cost of product. And then we discount it and we discount it um, on average between 15 and 25% for a person who has a, a disability parking permit or will have a, have a converted vehicle. Now, obviously every customer is different. You know, we have people saying, well, I bought this, you know, this car from somebody, but where you live makes a huge difference. The frequency of driving makes a huge difference. Where you park your car makes a huge difference. But no, we, we, we buy a set rating table and we discount off that. Mm. Yeah, okay. That's pretty cool. But that's great. Those stats are out there because, like you said uh, and hinted towards, that I wouldn't think that would be the perceived idea of somebody if they've got a parking permit. You, I don't know if this is just my take on it, but I'm a driving instructor and, and work in this industry, so I don't know. I don't know where it's come from, but I would assume yeah. that um, a lot of people would think that um, a disability permit would be something to avoid because of the risk of them yeah. crashing into you but you're, you're suggesting well, I, that the stats are different and and that's great news yeah and i think that's been a, maybe we'll, we'll touch on this is you know, again i wasn't involved in insurance up until eight years ago so i've mm. learned an enormous amount about that there are so many important variables that, that come into play here i guess some of the the obvious ones and when you hear them you kind of go oh, i don't make sense is mm. a lot of people who have a disability parking permit don't drive as often they don't go out as often they often aren't in peak hour traffic. I mean, lots of the crashes that you have are bumper to bumper traffic. Someone doesn't pay attention and they, and they crash into somebody. Um, you're parking in a, if you're parking in a, in a if you can find a, and, and manage to park into a, uh, a disability parking per, uh, spot, it's a highly visible spot. You're not going to get your car stolen from that spot because it's visible and, and easy to see. You've got a converted vehicle, not a high theft item. You know, you've got a, uh, you've got a passenger uh, in a, in a wheelchair in the in the second row. Again, you're unlikely to be doing you know burnouts down the motorway. So a lot of the factors that are relevant to a person with a disability automatically make them a lower level of risk. Mm. You think there is a cultural? Uh, what I'm thinking, Brad, I wonder if there's also like a cultural kind of yeah. social impression of that cohort. I guess the reason why I'm thinking that is the thing that I thought of was that interview we did with Nick. Um, Tiago and his high high level paravan controls. Mm -hmm. He had an accident, and he was standing next to the cop, and the cop like was like turning around saying to somebody else, "So I can't believe they gave these guys, you know, license." Typical bloody blah blah blah, and, yeah. and it, it totally destroyed this guy's self confidence. But like, it's it's really interesting because there's this cultural impression, but that's actually completely incorrect. Yeah. Um, so, well, and, and you you'll see that, and we you know we hear that all the time. It, it's People don't understand that. You know, how can you drive a car if you can't use your legs? Yeah. Well, people fly airplanes without using their legs. Yeah. You know? Very <laughs> true. There's just this this nuance that that's the way it should be done. And and both of you guys know that 
people are going through the same level of experience in terms of their instruction to drive, and they'll pass the same test that everybody else here. In fact, they probably go through more. Yeah, I was about to say, they actually probably go through more because even in South Australia here, you have to do your license test when you're 16 going on to your P's at 17. And uh, then you've actually got to do a medical practical assessment on top of that. So you've got to prove yourself twice just to get your license. And that's, you know, that's, that's more than anyone else. And if you've had a disability later on in life, you've got to pass another practical test and anyone without a disability doesn't have to do that. So yeah. you're absolutely right. They have to go through more scrutiny than, than anybody else. And they have this update later on in life if they've had an injury later so yeah it's good to hear but, it, but i think as you say the, we we all understand this the, the general population i don't think are, na are naturally discriminatory but they are just by default just you know i think don't understand situations well enough don't mm. educate themselves and i guess aren't educated well enough about it but certainly if you know if this, the perception would seem to be if you have a disability how can you possibly drive a car yeah, yeah. I, think, I think i think it goes down to brad uh, like I've seen it a lot in this industry and I, to be honest, I challenge a lot of, for example, salespeople in this industry um, because often in this industry, salespeople are able-bodied and they'll be like, oh, but this is not good and that's not good and this is not good. I'm like, well, but you've got, you're looking at through your frame and mm -hmm. your experiences of your life. What about, how about we go ask the end user what they think, you know? Um, and it's a similar kind of thing. And, and, and I like what you're doing because you, as you said before, what you guys are doing is, cutting through the, I guess, for lack of a better term, cutting through the crap with mathematics. Um, and, and, you know, you've just got the data and here's the data. And, and, and I guess me being an engineer, that stuff excites me a lot. <laughs> well, well, as you know, you know our business is, is run by backroom boffins who run calculus and, and algorithms. We, would, yeah. we wouldn't be in business if our numbers were wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. You know, that, that's, the, that's the reality of it. So, um, but yeah, you know, I, I guess you, you know we were talking very early on about um, insurance, and I guess you want to know what the difference is between insurances. Is you know, most insurance is successful because of scale. The bigger you are, statistically, the lower level of risk that you've got. And so, most successful insurance models are about massive scale, lots and lots and lots of homogenous people that we can kind of categorize together. Um, and we're the complete opposite of that. And there are other businesses that do this as well, is that we say, well, the alternative to that is we want to have specialised, differentiated relationships where we try and understand what you need and we try and provide you a service that meets with that. You know, the insurance industry is trying to go more and more towards, you know, we don't want to talk to you. Just click the boxes, pay the money, and, and the, the deal is done. Whereas we fundamentally believe that you need conversations. We need to understand. We understand, need to understand... Now that we ask, you know, your customers and any customers, who did the conversion? What's been done? How old are they? How are the hand controls? We just want to really understand what exactly we're insuring in the situation that that customer is in and try and get them the best outcome. So we spend, you know, most, well, a lot of insurance companies, it's hard to generalize, but a lot of insurance companies um, will do 95% of their business uh, online. Yeah, we do 95% of our business over telephone. We do. We, when we're available, you can you can take a policy with us um, online. Uh, most policies, to be fair, we, we don't finalise a policy for a wheelchair accessible vehicle or a converted vehicle because we want that conversation. We want to understand conversion and, and how old it is and, and who did it. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, people want to have conversations with us, and so we understand what we're insuring. Hmm. Yeah, that's actually um, interesting thing. I was thinking of, like, I guess. The difference between um, your organization and um, I guess a standard insurance organization is they're offering generally products for products and you're offering products for a consumer and trying to go sort of vertical and seeing what they, they, they offer. And, and on that note, um, there has been, I know in the car market, there has been a bit of a push from the more bigger insurance agencies to get into this market as well, like as a competitor. Um, and how do you find that? I, I, got, I don't want to get into that kind of a competitive com conversation <laughs> as such, but more like how are you finding that in terms of affecting the industry? Is it causing, is it better to have more competition? Is it causing confusion? Not really much of a thing. It's just a little product yeah. they've got. I, I don't think it's causing confusion. And look, we don't, we don't worry about it. But the reality is, it's a, first of all, Ellie, we hear about it. These things pop up. 
And for a few weeks, you hear about, oh, so-and-so has done something. But when it comes to focusing on, on our community, we know they're not going to do it. And there's no disrespect. It's not their business model. So it yeah. tends to be a little project that pops up and you either get somebody who's within the organisation who's passionate about it. And we know there are certain people on, on telephones and some of these organisations who know, you know, are involved with the committee and, and they become passionate and they try and help people out. Um, but the reality is it's not their business model. Yeah. Uh, this is our business model. This is all we're going to do and we're going to be better at it because, because of that. You know, we, we know every vehicle converter. We know the vast majority of the installs. We know the equipment. You know, we know wheelchair manufacturers. And so all of that helps us. Um, and, you know, and again, word of mouth in this community is key. Uh, you know, we've been a, a seven-year overnight success. Um, and as both of you know, you know, this is an industry that you have to prove yourself. You have to have experience. People have to have good and bad experience and talk about it. But the, a large proportion of our, of our business is word of mouth. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it sounds like what we harp on about every week, Ali, isn't it? about getting those people that are passionate and uh, and as you're saying exactly the same things, Nick. Uh, you've got the passion, you've got the understanding, you've educated yourself and uh, Ali and I have said that uh, and it's come up in many, many, many of our interviews that, um, you know, the right assessor, the right modifier, the right OT um, and now the right insurance, uh, it's, it's, all, it's all something to take into account. It's, well, it's, like, it's like what we've said. It's the common theme, very, very common theme of this podcast is the people that have spent the time to surround themselves with a team of suppliers, manufacturers or whatever that, as we say, know their stuff. Um, and like you said, you know your stuff because you're doing the research, you're connected with the suppliers. That's, again, one of the things we, we often mention with the OTs. Like if OTs are not talking to manufacturers and suppliers, mm. then we need to be questioning how much information they know, you know, like they have to have their own independent relationships like you have. So that's, that's awesome to see. And, um, and I guess it's really good. Uh, like, as you said, the proof is in the pudding with the success and the growth and being sort of the key people. And when we go to the experts, you're basically the only guys there. So, um, so that, that sort of shows itself. Yeah. And, and on that note, I guess there has been good and bad. Um, and I'm interested in like, what, what tips can you, like, what are some of the issues people have faced and what kind of tips are there for people out there to minimise facing those kind of issues when it comes to maybe getting insurance and also getting claims? Like, for example, sure. obtaining the insurance, what kind of barriers are people facing and what can they yeah. do to not have those barriers? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the one I want insurance is that there are two or three really important things that, that people should educate themselves on. And um, you know, we all, we've all heard about, you know, read the product disclosure statement and, you know, I encourage people to do that, but we know very, very few people do it. It's a laboriously long document, but it has to be because it's governed by compliance and requirements. And but in that will, will be, you know, it's, it's no different, you know, Ali, to reading the instruction manual on a hoist. You know, there's a bunch of stuff in that that's really important, like, you know, you should service your hoist every year and yet people, you know, people don't do it. Um, a couple of things I think if I was to go through the basics of just general insurance is understand the difference between agreed value and market value. It's such a, a simple kind of statement and yet people often have no idea. And, and the, I guess the general is an agreed value is, is you're going to have an, exactly the amount of money that if your vehicle is written off, that's how much money you will get. A market value, we can never give you a market value because it's changing every day. It, it varies over time. Um, and so a market value will always be cheaper, but an agreed value is more certain. Now, the other thing that you'll find is, and we do this as well, is that we'll give agreed value up to 15 years, but beyond 15 years, we'll only give a market value. And the reason for that is you, you get such variances in vehicles. You can get a 15-year-old vehicle that's done 4,500 kilometres and never been further than the low shops and has, has been you know kept in the garage in its mint condition or you can get a 15 year old vehicle that's done 470,000 kilometers and been driven around the country and they're two exactly the same vehicles and so it's very hard to assess those and to insure them until the point of claim okay so market versus agreed it's more about certainty um, versus price is um, are those the second one is what's your excess because people you know play with the excess so the excess is obviously the amount that you 
if there is an incident and you are at fault or you cannot identify who was at fault. So, you know, we get a lot of people. It's amazing how many people we get who someone just smashes into them in a shopping center, drive off, never leave their name and details. The customer has a claim, but unfortunately under an insurance policy, and this will be all insurance policy, or the vast majority, if you can't identify who the person was who crashed into it, you have to pay the excess. That's that's the way the model does, works. Does NDIS cover excess? Just that of a no, no. We, we can talk about NDIS, and it's a, it's a complex um, beast in, in its own right. Um, so so look at excess. I guess the thing about excess that I'd ask people to think about is if worse comes to worse and you have to pay that excess, do you have the money? Um, so you know. So again, the higher the excess, the lower your premium. So if, if you go for a thousand dollar excess, your premium will be much lower than if you go for a three hundred dollar excess. And that's simply because obviously you're, you know that the the risk is being is being adjusted, and it just comes down to the point where is if that came if you had an incident and you had to pay, can you afford a thousand dollars? Can you afford it easily, or is it going to really completely change the structure of how you're going to live your life and that's why we'd ask you to look at that sometimes paying a bit more in terms of a higher premium on a lower excess may be a better option for somebody than having that that much higher excess and a lower premium and it, it's all down to individual circumstances and and are you what to what extent do these conversations happen with you guys and guidance and so on we we always ask but it, you know, much like this conversation is that we can't give specific advice individual yeah. advice we can give general advice and so what i've just said to you is general advice you know but yeah, that's yeah. kind of the, the spectrum of, of what you can and can't do um and it really does come down to individual circumstances and both of you will know you know for some people a thousand dollars is nothing you know other people a thousand dollars completely changes the structure of how they're going to live the next six months of their lives yeah so you know it, it's difficult to um you know to kind of round that up especially then, in this industry um i would say more than often a thousand dollars is a massive impact on most people's lives i mean that's yeah we, that's why the ndis is around you know so yeah. um, so i guess that's a very big point to highlight is is um that excess you do have to pay it so you really once you put that insurance in place you really need to make sure you've had that probably locked away somewhere you yeah know, accidents happen yeah and, and obviously you know we all hope it doesn't happen and, and the odds are it won't happen or it won't happen for a number of years but you know, that that's the um that's the reality and I think the other one you just want to look at it is when you're comparing policies, look for like for like. You know, there's no point, you know, calling somebody up and trying to do a quote and then not, not having an even playing field between the two. So that would be really important just to know that you're getting like for like. And then the other one would be just look for, for, you know, for some differences and benefits. And I, and I guess for our business, that's where we try and make a difference. Uh, so obviously, you know, we ensure the conversions um, on a vehicle, we ensure the conversion separate to the car. The premiums come together, but on our um, and our documentation, we'll show exactly the amount of premium relevant to the conversion. And we do that because obviously, if you are through a funding body like the NDIS or TAC, you can claim that proportion of your premium back. Obviously, the NDIS won't cover the premium for your vehicle because obviously that's seen to be no different. But obviously, the cost that is related to your disability, which is the conversion, they'll pay for that premium. So we isolate that and show that. Um, so are you going to ask a question? <laughs> yeah, oh, so many questions for the uh, consumers to around that bit because I'm 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 pretty confident that this is new news to people that might be listening to this, especially the consumer, that um, part of their insurance may be able to be claimed through the NDIS. So if we could talk about talk about this area and give yep. uh, the consumer a little bit more information about how they can do that. Um, yep. That I, I think that'll be gold for our listeners. Sure. I, I mean, yes, I think um, I'm hoping it's becoming more and more well-known because obviously, so let, let's talk about, let's separate, you know, wheelchair accessible vehicles, which is a, obviously a large part of the market and a significant level of investment that's required. And, we know that a, a basic passenger cut floor conversion is going to cost $35,000 plus if you're doing a Kia Carnival. Um, so not many people are able to fund that out of their, out of their own pockets. So a lot of money you know, funding comes through there. Um, and then, uh, as Ali mentioned, you know, then there is drive from wheelchair conversions that can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, quite literally. Um, 
but even down to things like lifters, um, you know, or you know, or a hoist, or you know, other just hand controls where there's been no structural conversion to the vehicle. All of those we will isolate and separate on a policy, so that someone can insure them, see where they are. Um, we run a new for old for five years on those on those on those uh, products or those um, conversions. Um, but we, uh, and that is what you're alluding to, but we are capped at the moment to $75,000 of value of the conversion. Vehicle is separate. The conversion, uh, we insure up to $75,000. Now, statistically, that's probably about 97% of the world. Um, the number of people doing, you know, um, uh, some of the high level hand controls uh, from, you know, uh, from a wheelchair, is a very small part of the marketplace, but we are investigating ways to cover that. Maybe we can we can touch on that later on. So, but, but yes, I mean, the NDIs, as we know, nothing in the NDIs is, is guaranteed. It's all in a case-by-case -case situation. But if you go to their website, um, there's a specific section where they talk about what they will and won't cover when it comes to, or what they'll consider when it comes to a converted vehicle and the, the incremental insurance premium that is associated with those conversions certainly uh, we would say that the vast majority of those get get funded uh, yeah. if they can identify them and you need to be able to identify them and that's probably one of the biggest differences between us and we don't think we've found anybody else who can do that our basic policy just separates them and just shows them quite clearly and separate that's cool. I, I think that's awesome and for the ot's that are doing the at applications there's a section down the bottom of those AT applications co uh, called other things to consider. Um, uh, that's a perfect place for that to go in. Quite often, though, um, that's early before it's been approved and we don't really know uh, what's going to get approved and, and so forth at, as well. When's the best time to find this information out, Nick? Is it best to no. do get a quote really early on or is it best yeah. to get a quote once it's been approved by the NDIS to put these mods in or is it best to talk about it while it's in the workshop? I would think that uh, we get a lot of people who quote and they are they are not funded yet. You know, they're, they're putting it into their plan as part of their of the cost of their fund you know, of their funding so it's you know we, we will give an indicative quote it's not going to be a million miles out you know the, the time lag in some of these vehicles is 18 months mm, yeah you know as, as you as you will know from from when they start the process to when they actually get the vehicle when it comes down you know out of the out of the converters so we'll normally give them an indicative price often they'll come back two or three times you know if it's jumping plans to update those numbers um, and then obviously when uh, the vehicle is ready, we'll put a policy in place from there. So um, that's that's really good. Good info. Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm madly writing notes here. I'm uh, yeah. taking well, taking that, lots of info what, down. What you've, what you've said, uh, contrary to what we were discussing for the listeners, Nick was a bit worried that maybe his information might not be that great, being insurance. But I think actually there is so much gold here for our, for the people. There's too much, to be honest. Uh, um, so, so one thing I wanted to mention or cover, I think might be one of the last things we cover is, um, is I guess uh, people's issues with claims that they've had um, and why and, and how can they not have those issues? You know, we, we mentioned, for example, there's the area of maintenance where, where you can talk about that, but is there any yep. others where people have fallen short and they don't realise and something that can help them out, I guess? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, once again, 95% of claims roll right through. You know, we try and pay a claim out as, as quickly as we can. Um, unfortunately, there are some times when the circumstances of such where you need more information if the police are involved. Stolen vehicles is a great example where you have to wait a certain period of time to see if the, the police can find the vehicle. I mean, the, the number one issue I think that people may have is they don't collect enough data. You know, they run into somebody, somebody crashes into them. They kind of briefly exchange a few details and the person's gone and they realise they don't have the number plate right. The person's gave them the wrong number. You know, we would really say that that's the time. And that's difficult because we know people are often in shock. You know, even if it's a small incident, it, it, it's not what you're used to. You know, your, your body is, is going through a, a whole bunch of, of different kind of scenarios. But we would normally say, take a bit of time or get call someone to help you. 
and go through the process, get the person's driver's license, get a photocopy or get a, a photograph of the person's driver's license, photograph the vehicle, just realize where you were because any insurance claim will ask you to detail specifically what happened. You know, quite often you have a, an incident where both people who are involved say they were in the right. Mm -hmm. And then you get this massive fight over, you know, and we have to have as much evidence as we can have that, that shows that our client was in the right and the wrong. And the, the difference is you're still going to get your claim paid. The difference is um, you're going to either pay the excess or not pay the excess. If you're at fault, you pay, you know, you pay the excess. Mm -hmm. um, so collect information, uh, especially when there's a third party involved. Nick, do you have a, a cheat sheet for that, that people could potentially download and put in their car or? Gee, if I don't, but I probably should. All right. And uh, if, if there is something, we'll put it in the show notes and uh, people can click on it and yep. uh, download it and um, have it in their uh, glove box or something like that if they, if they need to. But um, yeah, yep. listening to this, that's, that's where my brain's going now. Geez, I really need to have that in my car because I'm learning something there too. I probably, it's a, it's a highly emotive time when there's when there's an incident and it, things can be forgotten well in the, in the majority of you know cases you're in shock mm. it's not something that happens to you or touch wood happens to you very often and so your whole body is trying to adjust to, you know to what's taking place i think the other one i, I probably should mention um uh, specifically to incidents when there's uh, equipment involved or conversions involved is there is a real need for people to make sure that they maintain their equipment Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, while we won't check up on that, so when you insure your vehicle, the expectations of any insurer is that you are maintaining the vehicle, you're getting it serviced the way it should be, you're getting the brakes fixed, you're getting the tyres fixed, all of those things that you need to do to drive a, a road-worthy a worthy vehicle. There's the same level of expectation that you should be maintaining your equipment so that it's safe and it won't put you in a compromised position. Um, an example of that, you know, for us a few years ago was that we had a um, one of our customers who was driving a, a vehicle with a hand control. Uh, he had the hand control, we believe, for about 14 years and had never had the hand control serviced in that 14-year period. And the hand control literally dropped off onto the floor while he was driving one day and had quite a serious accident. Now, normally in that circumstance, we would have had the right to deny that claim. Because, the, you know, the, the equipment, no different, as I say, to your brakes or your steering or whatever it may be, hadn't been serviced and maintained the way it should have been. Now, in that case, because of the circumstances of the person, we paid that claim, but we would have been in the rights of, you know, of our underwriting guidelines and of, of our policy not to pay that claim. And so we certainly encourage all our customers to have their vehicles regularly serviced not just the vehicle, but obviously the conversions as well. And on a, on a little note, I guess, being a, uh, myself being a supplier as well as an engineer, one thing I want to highlight, um, particularly with these simple hand controls, like the push-pull, I often get, when we mention that to people about the maintenance, we often get very hard pushback. Oh, what are you maintaining? It's just a bunch of bits of steel and a couple of bolts and nuts, you know? Um, but I guess what I want to highlight is a vehicle goes through thousands of vibrations a minute, like we're talking hundreds of thousands of vibrations an hour. Um, and so that thing in a year is going to have so much fatigue and stress uh, on it, each piece of steel. Um, so, so, yeah, you do need to get it checked out. And you do, even yeah. for example, from an engineering point of view, I don't certify um, secondhand stuff. I require it all to be refurbished, new bolts, new nuts, because as I... Like I get customers come up to me and say, hey, look, it's a bolt. It looks good. I say, but it's been in there for 10 years on hundreds of thousands of vibrations for 10 years. Yeah. You know, it's, it might look good to you on surface, but inside that, that structure is probably not holding together. So, um, so yeah, very big point there that there is, while some of the stuff might be simple, it is going under a lot of vibration all the time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, really, really important for um, the consumer to, to think about you don't want to have all these insurance policies in place um, and then not have it actually covered so uh, consumers out there make sure that you get your your modification service even if it's just a safety check that's that's as make sure that it's still done up tight make sure that it is still like what Ali's saying that it that it's surviving these vibrations and those nuts and bolts are not vibrating loose make sure it's get gets done up yeah and back to the NDIS discussion I'm pretty certain that should be covered by the NDIS. Yeah, they pay oh, for they it are. anyway. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. 
Yep, so it's under the maintenance budget. Pocket, it's yep. just put it in with how you expect to service your car every year. Yeah, and actually, I mean, one of the common things that <clears throat> comes up is all the difficulties around getting funding over the line and yep. getting approvals. Well, maintenance doesn't have any approval requirement. You just tick it in and it's done. So, so yeah. you don't have to ask anyone's permission. So I encourage everyone, just get it done. You know, it's free and, yeah. <laughs> so, well, when I say free, the government's paying for it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Nick, this has been, uh, look, if nothing else, I've learned a lot from this interview <laughs> and I'm hoping that the uh, people that are listening into this podcast have learned a lot. Um, the, we know that when we talk to um, industry experts like yourself, that they, they get a lot of uh, feedback and a lot of listens. So I'm hoping for the same for you that uh, this, this gets a lot of listens because there is a lot... Uh, to learn along the way about uh, the tips that you've um, provided to us. What Ali and I do now is um, we we say goodbye to you and we do our wrap up and we we um, well we're going to try Ali to get our top three tips. But I think there might be more than um, three tips that come out of this one. But um, look, we we thank you very much uh, for your time and effort. But we can't let you get away without our question that we ask everybody. <laughs> What's uh, something that you've done in your car that uh, is a little bit special, a little bit unique, something that uh, nobody else knows? Well, I don't know if no one else knows, but I'm one of those very sad car singers. Where, <laughs> where are the traffic lights? In the traffic lights. And, and where clearly my, um, well, I, what I lack in talent, I make up for an exuberance. Um, but a few years ago, I bought a, uh, a soft top car. And I'd, I'd really forgotten about the fact that I had the top down one day and I'm singing at the top of my lungs as a car full of young people pull up next to me as I'm doing my worst version of Robbie Williams' Angel. <laughs> and um, I've, I've never lived that down. I don't think I'm ever going to sing anywhere. Ever that. So there you are. There's That's exactly life. what this question's about, Nick. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. That is awesome. I might have to get you to sing next time. Yeah, yeah. Next, yeah. next time we get you on. I think that's all we just need. Karaoke is the only chance you've got. <laughs> yeah, Nick, Nick, thank you very much. If people want to find out a little bit more about uh, Blue Badge Insurance, where can where can they go? You do exactly that. Just search Blue Badge Insurance. It'll pop up uh, in your browser and uh, you'll be away. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much uh, for your time. Like you said, uh, listeners, hang around because Ali and I are going to try and break down our top three tips from this interview. And, um, yeah, we'll see you on the other side of this little break. Nick, thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks, guys. All right. That's a massive thank you to Nick for joining us on uh, this episode of the Drive Able podcast. Nick's a passionate man about the blue badge insurance, but Ali and I have broken down our top three takeaways that we think are important. Mind you, though, that we could have had a list of four, five, six, seven, eight out of this uh, podcast interview. So make sure you go back and listen to it. But our our top three takeaways, and then the first one is talking about excess and reading the PDS. So Ali, do you want to start off a conversation around that one? Yeah, yeah. So um, before we do that, I'll quickly also acknowledge Nick. I, to be perfectly honest, when we entered the conversation, I was thinking probably like some people, this is insurance. Like, how interesting could this really be? But man, that was amazing. And that was one of the most fruitful podcasts we've actually done. Um, and I thought that content in there was really solid and actually very, very useful. So, so yeah, go back there and check it out. I really, really, um, yeah. Uh, it was great. So, and as you said, lots of lessons, but the top three, that, that PDS and that excess, really, really important. So reading that PDS, reading those details, this seems to be a common theme with NDIS anyway, and, 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 and just in general, um, this world, you know, like it's a complicated world. Um, we need to make sure we dot all those um, I's and cross all those T's. And that's, it seems to be the issues in this world come, a lot of them are born out of just not understanding things, not reading things and not ticking those boxes. So I think that's really important. And then that leads on to understanding what your financial, um, I guess, financial implication is going to be or, or whatever it is, if there is an excess. So 
as Nick was saying, you have the option to adjust your excess and then that will affect your premium. Really important because when you have an accident, NDIS doesn't pay for your excess. That comes out of your own pocket. And if you've chosen a $1,000 excess and you the type of person that doesn't have $1,000 lying around in your bank account, which in this disability world, there's not that many people that do. We've got a lot of expenses. That could send you broke. And I thought that was really great information um, that you probably wouldn't think about when you're filling in those forms. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And um, comparing apples with apples is something else that he mentioned along the way there in regards to both the, the product disclosure statement, but um, actually making sure that you are comparing one policy with another policy that is similar or, or as accurate as possible. So you actually know what what you're, what you're paying excess for, but oh yeah, like we've said there, that understanding the risk of that excess. So yeah, you might be able to afford a, an extra coffee a week um, from week to week with $3 here or $3, you know, a little bit more there. But uh, what would happen if it was a hit with an excess of $1,000 or whatever it might be, what that would actually do to you um, if, uh, if that was a, a check that you had to write? Yeah, and, and, and I would encourage people, I guess, just after speaking with Nick um, and how passionate he is, and obviously he's the CEO, so I'm sure the team will be, uh, you know, I guess sharing that same passion. And um, they get to know you and they want to help you. So if you're unsure about how that impl implies, you just call them for a chat. Basically, that, that is what he was inviting for. Call them and they'll help you out anyway. And you they know, do um, chat. They do chat. You're not talking to a computer and they're not yeah. talking to someone in India. It's uh, it is chatting to somebody in an office here in Australia. Yeah. yeah. So that's a big, big recommendation. That kind of leads us into um, number number two in regards to the way that they help people with disabilities. They split the quote and the reason why they split the quote is so one is part one is covering the car. And part two is covering the modifications to the car. And the big takeaway out of all of this is that NDIS can fund the insurance for the modifications. They won't pay for the insurance to cover the car, but they can, uh, if it gets approved, pay for the modifications insurance. And that's a, that's a huge takeaway. And the, and the, maybe one that's being overlooked a lot in the industry. Um, maybe uh, the government doesn't want us to mention this, but we're going to do it anyway for the people with disabilities. Make sure that this is strongly considered when you're, when you're doing your modifications applications or even if it's retrospectively later on down the track when you've listened to this. Make sure that you, you contemplate this for funding through the NDIS. Yeah, I think, look, uh, my personal opinion on that, I think it's just something, like like we said in other podcasts, the car the, the car and transport thing just tends to be a bit of a forgotten thing. And to be perfectly honest, I've been in this modification part of the industry for with NDIS since it started for now coming on eight to nine years. And this is the first that I heard that. So, um, yeah. so and I'm, I'm working in cars and these parts every day. So, so the point is, is it's just, probably unknown you know um yeah and, and generally i guess day. ndis is not going to go advertise every single thing that you could possibly get off them so so it is about um just you know resources and getting that information and having the right people around you so they can help you you know and, and these guys are definitely seem to be a right person to have on your team you know with, with your vehicle uh, mods yeah and that's why we're doing this podcast so one we can learn but then we can also pass these tips on to our listeners as well um and that's leads us on to tip number three the third takeaway from this um this interview with nick was about maintaining your equipment so one it could be insured but if you don't maintain your equipment it may not be covered by insurance so that's something to really consider like quite often i, I know with uh lifters on the back of vans for access cabs and those type of things there's a little sticker that says serviced on this date Sometimes I've seen those four, five, six years out of date and they haven't been maintained and, and yeah, people aren't maintaining equipment sometimes. So make sure you do maintain your equipment because you want to make sure that if um, something does go wrong, you're not going to have to be blamed or put at fault for, for not keeping your, your products in, in good order. 
And as mentioned, particularly with NDIS, you kind of don't really have an excuse if you don't maintain it because they pay for the maintenance and that doesn't even need any kind of pre-approval or quotes. It's one of the easiest things that you can get um, with NDIS is the maintenance of your equipment because I guess they recognize if they're forking out all these thousands of dollars, they want the stuff to last, you know, and, and that's, that is the situation. As we mentioned earlier on, your car experiences thousands of vibrations a minute um, and that's all of the bits and pieces in those, uh, you know, in those cars, all the modified pieces, which, which, yeah. So you just need to make sure that you maintain them and get them looked after. Yeah. Um, so that was our top three uh, tips and takeaways. Uh, Ali, what we might do is we might just read out that disclosure statement again from, uh, from Nick. Um, it also covers us as well in regards to advice and tips and tricks that we're uh, providing. Just make yes. sure that, you know, this, this is a generalist podcast. It's about providing stories about people, what other people are doing. It may not be right for you. Make sure that you're aware that, you know, things may change for your personal story. But if you could read that statement again, yep. Ellie. So as we said before, the information shared in this podcast is general in nature and does not take your specific needs or circumstances into consideration. So you should look at your own financial position, objectives and requirements and seek financial advice before making any financial decisions. As we said, we've discussed things like excesses and money and all that kind of stuff. This is all general conversation um, for whoever is listening you really need to get independent advice um, from specific professional people around this stuff. So uh, always remember that. Don't just go based off what we said in this podcast. Well, and as we sign off on every single podcast, we say if you've got any queries about what um, you can do or what will work for you, make sure you get in contact with your local OT or mobility dealer and set yourself up with a trial because dry, uh, trials really do put you in the driver's seat. And that's our, that's our disclosure statement there as well. That's it. We'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Drive Able podcast with Brad Williams and Ali Akbarian. If you like what you've heard, make sure you like, rate, and subscribe. It really does make a massive difference. If you or anyone you know would like to share a story about driving with a disability or you would like to get in contact, find the show notes or find the resources mentioned in this episode, you can find us on Facebook. Just search at Drive Able Podcast for more information.